Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, cocaine in Parliament? Who ever heard of such a thing? As the Sunday Times finds traces of the drug in the Commons toilets, are we surprised to learn that our political class's favourite global trading partner is Colombia? Plus, the Omicron variant could be dominant in the UK within a few weeks, according to one microbiologist. Are travel bans fair, and are they enough to hold back the variant? The Women's Tennis Association suspends all competitions in China over concern for the safety of missing Chinese player Peng Shui, with the US expected to announce a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Is it really down to sport to stand up for human rights? And, we've all had to do it, how do you spot a chancer at work? All that and more on this week's bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. Our special guest today is a Guardian columnist who's across everything from policing and energy policy to whether smaller wine glasses will make us drink less. Good luck with that. It's Zoe Williams. Hello, Zoe. Hello there. There's a crazy story from the weekend. The government is planning to give itself the power to throw out judicial rulings it doesn't like. The Times reports that Johnson was incensed by the rulings against proroguing Parliament and the and the, and the ruling that triggering Brexit would require a parliamentary vote. He's given legal megabrains Dominic Raab and Suella Braverman uh, the task of creating new powers. What do you think of this? I mean, it, it, this seems like an exceedingly serious step. Um, well, I, weirdly, I was talking to a Labour MP today and she said that, you know, they've got to the point, everybody always forgets, especially constituents, but including commentators, we always forget just how impotent um, the opposition party is when the majority is 80. And she, she was kind of basically, all we've got at the moment is re- Tory rebels and the Lords. Now, normally you'd think, oh, no, that's not going to work. But actually... A constitutional matter like this, this is what really, really gets the Lords going. And I would be incredibly surprised if they couldn't thwart this. Yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it is banana republic stuff, isn't it? Robert Buckland was reportedly sacked for opposing it. But the idea that the government can, via a retrospective act, simply undo decisions on its own um, its own activities. Oh, yeah. No. And, and I think, to be honest, if it weren't for the bicameral system, I wonder whether it would even be floated. I think Boris Johnson knows, maybe even at a subconscious level, that he's going to be thwarted. I mean, there is absolutely no way the Lords are going to go for it. So um, I'm not especially worried, but I, I do think it's quite a dark road to even suggest. Also with us is former BBC journalist, current Chancellor at the University of Kent and author of the cheery book, How Britain Ends, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Hello, and it is a very cheery book, frankly. Well, at least for from a Scottish Presbyterian <laughs> point of view. <laughs> Yeah, it depends how much you like Britain, I suppose. So, Gavin, I mean, it, it was announced earlier today that Bob Dole, the former Republican Party presidential candidate, has died at the age of 98. Uh, you, you were BBC Washington correspondent in the 80s. You, you knew him. What, what sort of a man was Dole? Yeah, it was it was in the nineties actually, mm. and he he's a great guy. He was a great guy. He was from, as the Americans say, the greatest generation. The, the generation that got together and won the war. He's from Kansas, uh, absolute salt of the earth American. I think he joined the army at about nine, age of 19. He was hit by a shell towards the end of the war and he lost the power in his right arm. So when you, you shook hands with him, you had to do a kind of awkward thing to your to his left arm. But he was... He was a he had a huge amount of wit uh, about him. Very very dry American humor. For instance, when Hillary Clinton produced a thirteen thousand page bill on healthcare in the mid nineties, uh, it was dead on arrival at Bob Dole's office as uh, Senate Majority Leader. And I I did an interview with him, and I, at the end of it, when he said, "Well, he voted against it because it was it just wasn't the right for for the country," I said to him, Senator you haven't even read it. And he said, son, I couldn't even pick it up. <laughs> he actually, he, he did say privately, she could have got the bill through 80, 80%, 85%, but she went for the full thing. And that's one of the problems about American politics. And it's certainly true of his his party now. So uh, may he rest in peace. Yeah, I mean, at the time he was considered to be, in the way that uh, every election between two choices People have to be polarized and become a saint and a, and a monster. You know, Dole was kind of very much demonized as, a, as an extreme right winger at the time. Now he just seems like the most reasonable guy. I mean, he 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 campaigned for Martin Luther King Day, didn't he? Which it's hard to imagine today's crop of Republicans backing those kind of policies. Yeah, and he, you know, he was actually friends with Biden. You know, there was an old story about Reagan and some of the and Tip O'Neill, who was the Democratic. Uh, uh, 
Speaker of the House. And he, Reagan used to say, we're enemies until six o'clock. And then after that, we have a drink. And they were, Dole was a very, very tough competitor. And he knew the politics of the Republican Party, but he wasn't a headbanger. And unfortunately, uh, some of the, uh, the Republicans today would fall into that latter category. Completing the panel, he's a stand-up comedian. His show Dress resumes touring in January. Tickets at ahearshaw.com. It's ahearshaw.com. Hello, Ahear. <laughs> Hello. So away from Parliament being knee-deep in cocaine, which you're going to be talking about shortly, the Conservative Christmas Party from last year has become you know, the, a lightning rod for resentment. And particularly the, uh, the, you know, the comedy quote of the week is uh, Rob telling uh, the Marsh show that the police don't normally look back and investigate things that have taken place a year ago. This is news to me, I hear. If I murder somebody, how long should it be before the police decide it's all a long time ago and it doesn't really matter? Of course, uh, as we were actually discussing before recording started, this is uh, being said at the same time as some people in Ilford are being uh, charged for having an illegal gathering uh, on the 18th of December. So clearly, it is the case that people are looking into these events that even though they happened last year, it's just if you're in Ilford, then you have slightly worse luck than if you're in Downing Street. Well, time does move at different speeds at different parts of the universe. So maybe like Ilford is just more recent. I don't know. I mean, are we going to have to like start looking at a four dimensional universe where we decide what's going to be prosecuted and when? Yeah, I mean, uh, this this I think will lead to Ilford taking centre stage in the next sort of Doctor Who uh, <laughs> series, or uh, or sort of Doctor Strange perhaps getting involved and using the Time Stone in order to uh, assess whether things happen in uh, Ilford slightly closer to time. You're talking my language again. I mean, traditional question on these. I mean, every week something absurd and infuriating happens, and every week we ask, "Is this one going to stick? Do you think this one's going to stick?" It's odd to know because, oh, sorry, it's difficult to know because there's always sort of any time anything happens uh, that the government do that's bad. It's like, oh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, was on film chopping the head off a boy. And it's like, oh, they don't care about chopped heads in the in the Red Wall. No one cares about that uh, sort of thing. Uh, and people just sort of seem to want to give him uh, more of a blank check that or a lot of people in the media seem to want to give him more of a blank check than much of the public does and you know we, we've seen it in all too recent time people were saying oh the Patterson thing this is just a Westminster bubble story no one cares about that actually turns out people bloody well care about that and so I, I think that they are complacent about how little people care about the sort of rampant nature of the sort of one rule for us, one rule for the rest of them thing, uh, that they underestimate how much people care at their peril. It's Drugs Week in Westminster. We are told that middle-class <laughs> cocaine users could lose their passports and driving licences under a brand new war on drugs, which was announced within a day of the Sunday Times reporting on casual cocaine use by a group of MPs and Class A drug traces in 11 out of 12 locations tested in the building, including places accessible only to those the parliamentary passes. One location was the women's toilets nearest to Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel's offices. There is no suggestion, etc., etc. The Sunday Times quoted the classic insider as saying, Parliament has a toxic cocktail of stress, cheap booze, food and drugs. Speaker Lindsay Hoyle has called in the police to investigate. So let's talk about the parliamentary situation first and then this, uh, you know, suddenly pulled out of the bag new legislation plan for a 10-year war on drugs too. Gavin, you're a seasoned reporter. A common reaction to this story was, well, what do you expect? Of course, they're all at it. What's your experience? Does, does Parliament have a cocaine problem from your understanding through the world of journalism? Well, it has all kinds of problems. I have no idea. I suspect mm. if this is true, there will be no supply chain problems for, for the drug dealers, <laughs> not like everything else that we have supply chain problems for. Um, I, I, I don't know if Parliament is insulated from the rest of the country in this, and I suspect it isn't. And I suspect that may go to quite high levels as far as, far as I know. But I have never experienced it or seen it i'm a very very dull presbyterian i do drink whiskey but that's 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 about it so so i i, I have no idea but what i would say is when you hear the word plan uh, from this government or crackdown i translate that as as delusion distraction or deceit i mean we, rishi sunak has a plan to cut taxes there's now a plan after 11 years of conservative government to crack down on on drug use um there's all kinds of plans but are they actually ever going to happen and the fact that it is the, the the fact that there is some kind of traces of the drugs in parliament seems to me to be a suggestion that actually 
taking people's passports away or taking their driving license away. I mean, it might happen, but are they really going to do anything, anything different that they've done in the past 11 years? Is it like my plan to get off the couch and start riding a bike, that kind of a plan, rather than an actual sort of stage by stage thing? Well, well, look, I mean, they've had plenty of people arguing for, for things like this for years. I've had plenty of times of police officers, senior police officers, saying this is also a middle-class drug, drugs problem. And every part of the supply chain, someone is abused, from the cocaine gangs in, in Latin America to the, um, the county lines gangs over here. But that problem has been identified for years. And the question is, what in practical terms, are they going to do about it apart from having a, a plan for a crackdown? I think I think we're making a slight category error here. There are lots of um, drug use behaviours that do break down into kind of middle class, working class. But actually, when you're talking about coke and certainly coke at work, it's much more of a posh thing. And the Tories have a much bigger incidence of it than the Labour Party, I would posit. Um, there was like famously people were trying to uncover, you know, under the coalition government, there were videos going around of, you know, people who you would probably recognize taking mm. taking drugs, snorting drugs around a dinner table. Um, and that has never been a big labor thing because I think it's just they're just not that racy. On the subject of getting of, of finding traces of cocaine in toilets, though, this has been. I remember when they first did the, when they first released for commercial stroke regular use these drug testing kits. I.e., when a journalist could first buy them, it was the mid nineties, and I was on the Evening Sound at the time, and we were sent to the Royal Opera House <laughs> to to see if anybody in the Royal Opera House had ever taken cocaine, and. <laughs> Actually, these, you know, these tests are incredibly sensitive. They seem to be able to, I mean, I've never, honestly, as a joke, we tested the toilets in the standard and the mail to see if they worked. And, and the results I, I were? They did work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, were, they all got a positive, every single toilet got a positive result. Every single toilet in the Royal Opera House. Somebody went into the BBC, I think, and they <laughs> and got a positive result there. So, all I'm saying is that either these tests are too sensitive or cocaine is extremely difficult to clean out of a toilet and, and linger for years and years and years, or there's somebody taking GAC in every single public space in London. Those are I think, Zoe, you are, you are ignoring the very real possibility that the toilets at the Royal Opera House are just made of cocaine. <laughs> well, they're very expensive, those boxes. <laughs> it is, but, like, this, you know... We kind of do this pearl clutching start thing, but this, as a kind of journalistic experiment, has been going on for at least as long as I've been a journalist, and that's thirty—that's like twenty-seven years. And so I don't think I don't really see it as a story about drugs. I see it more as a kind of mischief-making joke, gotcha moment. And I think it must have been coordinated to coincide with Boris Johnson's war on drugs announcement. I mean, there's no other there's no other explanation I can find. Well, certainly the government likes to run against Parliament as well as against middle class metropolitan Remainers, judges, teachers and all other agents of kind of liberalism, doesn't it? It sees the parliamentary establishment as part of its, its world of enemies too. So we might say, gosh, isn't it embarrassing that Parliament has been discovered to be, uh, you know, ankle deep in cocaine at the same time that Drugs Weeks comes up. The message that the government wants to send out to its base of voters is that, uh, you know, there are two Britons. There's the kind of corrupt elite self-satisfied Britain and there's, uh, there's you and there's us. Yeah, 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 exactly so. You would be going out on a limb to say this was direct from CCHQ. You'd be going out on a limb to say this was a coordinated act by members of government. But I don't think you'd be going out on a limb to say somebody's done this in order to ram home a political point, whether that political point is that the Conservatives are hypocrites or whether that point is, um, you know, we, the a kind of elite and the mob alliance against the kind of pursue, perceived metropolitans is is too early to say, and I wonder if we'll ever be able to say. But I certainly don't take it at face value as a completely new and untoward event that's never happened before. Michael Gove's uh, admission that he took cocaine when, a, when he was a journalist in the 90s has, has become a punchline. Johnson himself admitted that he took it when he was 19, and he insists that uh, nothing happened. There was no psychotropic effect of, of, of any kind. You know that's a sign of ADHD. If you can take coke and go immediately to sleep, <laughs> that's a sign <laughs> that you've got attention hyperactivity. 
eating disorder. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's plausible, though, right? You look at Boris Johnson, certainly in his marital record, he doesn't look like a guy with a long attention span. No, he certainly doesn't. <laughs> Well, he certainly doesn't have a long attention span for reading any of his uh, briefs that are provided by civil servants. And I know that firsthand from civil servants who provide him with briefs. But I, I'm, slight, I'm slightly concerned at the thought um, when you talked about it, it could be corrupt, elite, self-satisfied Britain against the, re- the Red Wall or, or whatever. Because, frankly, if people think of it uh, as a, a government with a majority of 80 in Parliament, it perhaps thinks that, that this is more of a Conservative problem than a Labour problem, as Zoe suggests. So I'm not sure that anybody particularly benefits from finding uh, traces of cocaine in parliamentary lavatory seats. Uh, yeah, as, as I mentioned, you know, Michael Gove admitted taking it in the 1990s. It didn't seem to have damaged his, his career at all. Anybody in, at the kind of intersection of politics, media, any of their creative businesses is, is going to be surrounded by this. Gove got away with it. His career wasn't ended. Are, are we past the point of indiscretions damaging politicians? I mean, does it have to be something incredibly egregious and, you know, obviously either cash or sex centred, as was with the case with uh, Matt Hancock and uh, Owen Patterson? Yeah, well, I guess, I guess as, as you say, it sort of depends what the indiscretion is, right? And it's like, does anyone really, like, Michael Gove was born, I looked it up, in 1967. So if he was in the 90s, like, do I care that Michael Gove did cocaine in his 20s? No, not really. Would it be a problem if someone in government were a habitual user of that sort of thing now? Uh, like while while in while doing the job, uh, then in that case, quite probably that would be um, an issue. So I think that yeah, it does it does sort of depend who and what and when really. So let's talk about this ten year strategy and this uh, this policy of attacking those fiendish middle class drug users. Johnson was running around in Liverpool this morning in a very ill fitting police outfit, talking about this uh, strategy of going. Very hard and very tough. There seem to be the repeated phrases over and over again. The uh, the strategy for uh, middle class uh, lifestyle users, as he described it, includes confiscating passports and driving licenses, but also going through confiscated dealers' phones to ring people up and frighten them. What did you make of this package of measures? Well, I mean, it, it really, for a start, the package as it was announced was extremely contradictory. So it, it, there was a kind of long, quite waffly bit about how putting people in prison for short sentences wasn't making any difference and it wasn't worth it and it was, and you had to focus on rehabilitation. But then he's talking about middle class drug users and actually there's, there's, the number of middle class drug users in prison for using drugs is vanishingly small. And essentially at the moment, the drugs charges are a, a, a sort of quasi-racial profiling system you know maybe i'm not even saying that cps does it on purpose but they are disproportionately levied against bame young men um and that and and it's it doesn't make any sense when you look at the actual profile of drug users because there's quite a lot of research on this there's actually quite a lot of kind of anonymized research on people who take drugs recreationally and that is not racially codified you do not find that that most drug users are BAME you find that there's a pretty even distribution relative to the population so at the moment Boris Johnson weirdly is right in the sense that handing down these short sentences is neither any good for deterrence but also the thing he didn't mention is that it's inherently discriminatory um as for the rest of his raft of, mes- of measures, it's, as far as I can see, quite silly. I mean, there's, I cannot imagine the scenario in which you could remove somebody's passport without that coming up against some kind of judicial review and, you know, really significant challenge on human rights basis. I can't see it turning into anything. I can see it being a kind of big gesture politics. I can see it being a kind of um, you know, one of those, I think they're trying to create a talking point, which they can, which will be like their homey every time they get, every time they get kind of scared off territory or embarrassed on territory, which I think is usually going to be corruption and incompetence. They can return to home base, which will be their war on drugs. And it's it is actually not dissimilar to Dominic Cummings' strategy, which he was suggesting to the Labour Party after he fell out with Johnson was, you know, go in on knife crime, just don't stop on about knife crime. Now, that's not interesting politics, right? It's not interesting politics to zone in on an issue which is actually much more complicated than just bang them up and it much more you know requires a really systemic and important conversation which that kind of politics doesn't want to have so it's not at all interesting as as a kind of political frame but it is pretty obvious 
what they're trying to do. They're just trying to create a safe space for themselves where the, the morality of the matter is very simple and they can saber rattle and talk big talk and it doesn't actually make any difference. Yeah, I mean, when every other government in the world seems to be heading towards combinations of decriminalisation, uh, rehabilitation and so forth, for us to be going in precisely the other direction seems strange to say the least. But what's one bit that I thought possibly deserved a bit more of a closer look or a fairer look was the idea of disrupting county lines dealing, which definitely does cause BAME kids to suffer far, far more. It is a, a, a factory for crime and a conveyor belt to prison. There's 145 million quid set aside supposedly to disrupt it. There wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of detail on it. What did you think of that? Again, with the county lines, it, it, this has not a bad correlative with New Labour and their ASBOT moves in the early 2000s. Um, the problem with focusing your efforts on the kind of crime that draws in young people is that young people are much, much easier to catch than career criminals. So if you say all our efforts are going to be to, uh, kind of focused on county lines and specifically young drugs mules, then either you're not talking about a policing issue, you're talking about a safeguarding issue, which should be fine, or you're going to end up picking up a load of 13, 14-year-olds and bouncing them into the criminal justice system where they are from 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 where they are unlikely to emerge unscathed. I mean, at the, at the height of the ASBO policy, there were 330,000 under-18s arrested in a year. That's a third of a million children, basically, arrested merely because the government had set targets for arrests and it's much easier to arrest a 13-year-old than a 19-year-old. Now, I would be surprised if this initiative has learned anything from any previous initiative because they're just not that kind of government. They don't learn, they don't listen. But if they have learned something and they're going to spend that money on safeguarding and social stroke community initiatives, then great, good luck to them. Gavin, before we move on, this has been framed entirely in in terms of county lines, very poor and excluded kids involved in drug trade, and middle class dinner parties where everybody's passing around, uh, you know, high end pure cocaine with the after rates. But the bit that is never mentioned is the pub coke use, the mass use of coke out in the sort of broad swathe of society, that it's become a part of a, of a Thursday, Friday and a Saturday night. We've just seen the report on the attempt to uh, invade Wembley Stadium at the end yeah. of the Euros. And anybody watching attentively will have seen people actually doing lines off the back of their wallet in the ground, broadcast on television. The report cited cocaine use as a huge part of this. This is white working class and middle class young men who have put cocaine into their recreational repertoire and it's not being talked out about at all why is that yeah you've you've hit it absolutely on the head i think that's absolutely right i was really struck by that part of the report also by the filming i was also i had a conversation with a taxi driver yep speak to taxi drivers uh, who are fun found uh, full of knowledge on such matters and he said he took picked up somebody a uh, couple of young uh, working class lads and one of them said, where can we get some Coke? And he, the taxi driver, started to make jokes about he didn't drink Coca-Cola. And uh, it all turned a bit sour at that point. But the, the, the point he was making was it is something that people say to him as if it is quite normal to ask a taxi driver to help them to, to pick up uh, drugs that are not the exclusive use of middle class dinner parties. The only other bit of this story I thought was quite interesting was Boris Johnson in Liverpool, where he's not the most popular person, but the only way to go is to go in a kind of a police uniform, I guess, and surrounded by police. Uh, I wonder why, why, did he, why did he go there? I didn't quite get what was going on there, and I'm not quite sure how popular he would be in Liverpool. I think it's the only way you can get in by wearing that outfit, but uh, yes. Perhaps. <laughs> I was just going to say, on the, on the subject of football... Uh, and I was like, yeah, if you if you go to sports stadiums and stuff, there's lots of that happening. And people like there's there's the big chant that, you know, when I was in Wembley or even when I've been at the cricket and you'll hear thousands of people shouting, uh, don't take me home. I want to stay here and sniff all the gear. Please don't take me home, which is also the worst chant. It's a terrible uh, chant. Yeah, it's, it's very it's, 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 very, it's very, very prevalent in those sorts of settings. They're doing it at the cricket as well, oh God. Yeah. I was like, this is Lords. Stop it. <laughs> it's like the idea that you can kind of um, threaten and legislate your way out of this kind of 
debunked by history that you, what you actually need is a kind of drunk driving style change in culture that, you know, it's only ever going to change when it becomes socially unacceptable as it became socially unacceptable to drink half a bottle of whiskey and drive home, that it's only ever going to change when the message, you know, is is properly taken out that, you know, this is a drug that's catastrophic for developing countries and the environment, sustains crime and murder at home and abroad, puts kids into crime. It's, isn't that the only way that it's ever going to change? And when you've got something that reinforces people's uh, confidence and sense of self-worth with a completely artificial boost, it's hard to make that argument to them. You can do in-depth things around like investigating why the culture is this certain way and trying to deal with issues in that manner. Or you can just say, we're going to take away everyone's passports or what have you. And it's uh, hardly surprising that uh, this particular government and this particular prime minister are much keener on the latter weirder way. Meanwhile, more variant fun. Omicron cases continue to rise. On Saturday, the number of UK cases reached 246 after 86 new infections were reported. Travel restrictions come in today, Tuesday, in an attempt to control the inflow, but the variant is already here and it's rising fast. So will they have any effect? And I'll be back to saving Christmas all over again. Gavin Esler, the South African health researcher, Professor Willem Hanacom, said on Mar that while Omicron appears to be more transmissible, it seems to result in milder cases. If that is the case, are we overreacting to this new variant? Well, we hope he's right. And I think the thing uh, that most, uh, I mean, the South Africans have done a great job. That, let's be clear, they have alerted us to this. It's not from South Africa. It's just obviously, as we know, South Africa, where they figured out what's going on. And it may be all over the place. And it is here. There's no question of that. So it is a sense of deja vu all over again, as the old cliche says. Um, are, are we going to save Christmas? Are, are we going to actually change what we're doing? Might we actually agree that mask wearing should not have been stopped in the first place? There's all kinds of things. The big, the big picture is we are not out of it until we vaccinate everybody, not just in Britain, but around the world, or everybody who can tolerate a vaccination, or more or less everybody. And we're nowhere nowhere near yet. So the idea that in the area around Johannesburg, this would be discovered because they've got quite a good uh, scientific um, system there, but they've also got quite a lot of poor people, that is hardly surprising. So we're not going to get out of this ever until we make vaccines available to poorer people, poorer countries, and we've not done enough to do that. The way that I think about the way that South Africa has been treated, it's like if, um, you know, during the American Revolution, when Paul Revere shouted, the British are coming, the British are coming. And it's like if everyone went, uh, cheers, Paul, now fuck off. Did you hear like Paul Paul brought the British? Guys, everyone, Paul brought the British. And it's like, no, he didn't. He was just warning you. Yeah, as if it was like the, you know, the Paul Revere variants. Yeah, yeah. spreading throughout the United States in the 1700s. I don't know. I mean, th- this is something maybe the whole panel can give their impressions on this one. I think there has been a bit of an increase in mask wearing. I think people have actually responded. It went from very low before the before last Tuesday's kind of change in the regulations to, you know, I'm going to say 70, 75 percent. What, what's been everybody else's experience? I've definitely noticed that on the tube, for sure. Like it, it was because it was always mandated on the tube, but the way that a lot of people were going on, you'd never have known it. You would have yeah. thought that it was a matter of uh, everyone just choosing to do it. But it, it was slightly uh, heartening, I thought, that seeing that, all right, this new stuff has come in, there is a new variant, and people did seem to respond sort of immediately to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I, and I also think there was a sort of weird time where it was still mandated on the whole of TFL, but if you got on a bus and you'd forgotten your mask, nobody else minded. Sometimes you would get on with a mask and you'd be in a minority. And there was kind of very much this build-up of peer pressure, which is actually the only, which is the only thing that ever made any difference. I don't think mandates ever make a difference. That all they do is influence a kind of body of people, and then the people on the tube influence each other, or the people on the bus influence each other. And certainly, the tide has turned on that. It, it, it's definitely majority mask use. And if you haven't got a mask, you feel like you have to think of a really good exemption and fast. So I think it's changed quite a lot. I also see many more kind of, you know, innovative FFP2 masks now. Because there's this kind of, you know, among the among the extremely cautious, there's a sense that those cloth masks are really a bit more cosmetic than the proper medical grade masks. And I see more medical grade masks on the tube. 
The travel restrictions, Gavin, I mean, the travellers heading into the UK will now have to take a COVID test 48 hours before uh, they leave for the UK. Nigeria has been put on the red list and the travel industry in Nigeria in particular are very angry about this as they, they may have a case in that, you know, it was only detected in South Africa, as we keep saying, it's, it's, it is everywhere. So the idea of cutting off individual countries is illusory, but at least the action is taking place quickly. After a year of too little too late, is it? Is this actually finally timely action from Boris Johnson's government? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't have great sympathy for anything that the government has done on this in the past uh, 18 months, except getting the vaccines out and now finally doing something in a timely fashion. Because uh, throughout the past 18 months or so, it's always been a bit late and it's been later than uh, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales, Scotland, other countries have done things much, much quicker. So uh, it's very difficult. You know, the question of what you should do about Nigeria or other countries is always going to be very difficult, but they are doing something. And just, you know, I, I'm afraid we are going to have to normalise the idea that masks are probably in most crowded public spaces, something we're just going to have to deal with. And I t- did notice there was, I can't, uh, was it Steve Baker making this plea that as if it's the, you know, it's it's Armageddon having to wear a mask. It's, it's the end of humanity. You know, it's a bit of paper over your face. For goodness sake, grow up. It's just really, really silly. Um, he said it was the road to yeah. hell, didn't he? And you're kind of like, I wonder what his kind of Hieronymus Bosch visions are <laughs> of, the, of the bad place. You know, it's just like you've committed terrible sins in your life. Here you go, put this bit of cardboard on you around, around you. And there you go. And I'm like, Is that it? Well, I would have done. I would have done more murder and theft if I knew that that was all the, the only sanction. Do you know what I mean? really weird is that they essentially this political movement so all the kind of nudge unit work originally was done on lockdowns and people resisting them and this was kind of fundamentally un-British and no true Britain would accept being told to stay at home. Turned out we accepted being told to stay at home really really easily and there was very little resistance to that and actually I wonder if there would be even if they had a lockdown tomorrow but The kind of anti-mask use has collided with the um, anti-vax conspiracy theory to turn the objection to masks into a political, to kind of give it a political dimension that it really doesn't deserve. Because as Gavin says, it's, it's it's just a piece of cloth, but there's this kind of confected... I don't want to say culture war because it's actually nothing to do with the culture, but there's this confected left-right polarisation in which if you're a kind of libertarian right-winger, then, of course, you oppose masks. But this seems to me like almost the end point of irrationality because it's really nothing to do with your kind of your political poll, whether you mind a bit of cloth over your face or don't. Zoe, uh, I think that I, I would disagree that I think that if there were to be a uh, lockdown tomorrow, uh, there would be a tremendous amount of public backlash. And certainly, like, I wouldn't be sort of, well, we weren't, we weren't happy about any of them. But, you know, I think that there's a world of difference between us doing that when there hadn't been a mass vaccination campaign and us doing it for the fourth time after tens of millions of doses, hundreds of millions of doses uh, had been given out. Oh, yeah, no, I completely agree. I don't want a lockdown and I definitely wouldn't lobby for one. But I think the point, and and actually particularly in the UK, the point at which they announce a lockdown is generally speaking the point at which everybody's starting to freak out anyway. So if they they announce one tomorrow with the rates and the hospitalisation rates the way they are, then yeah, you're right, people would object. But if they got into a kind of the really kind of dark days of January this year, again next January, then I think people would wear it. But you might be right. I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't go to the wall over my nudge nudge unit predictions. But Zoe, that gulf between the columnists and also the, the anti-vax, anti-mask protesters, uh, sort of you know loudly saying we can't take any more. What about our freedoms? And the way. Joe and Josephine Public are behaving, which seems to be, well, we need to wear masks now. Okay. It is quite large and visible, isn't it? As you say, it's it's a, it's a culture war with, with, without the culture. Do those people, those columnists, those pundits and those protesters have enough in the tank to keep this pitch of anger going? I mean, I nearly said hysteria. We need another word for hysteria. It doesn't have the connotations of hysteria, but to keep that pitch of rage going for themselves. That's a, it's a really interesting question because a lot of the anger is kind of self-generating. So I think a lot of the protesters, for instance, 
they're getting a huge amount of energy and purpose and identity from their stance on what is essentially a kind of neutral public health matter. Um, so I think, every, you know, all the time, every time they protest, they just get more energy for further protests. In terms of the columnists, I think there's a lot about so many things. Um, the masks on one, from one perspective, also kind of anti, There, you don't really get a lot of anti-vaccination columnists because I think that's commonly understood to be medically irresponsible, endangering to readers and therefore you would struggle to get that past it, so I think. Um, but you do get a lot of, the, you know, mask, anti-mask um, activism from people like Alison Pearson. And it does remind me a little bit of the kind of anti-trans columnizing. You, because half of, part of you thinks, well, surely, you know, they've already written a column about how they don't agree with trans people or they don't agree with pronouns. Surely they can't write that every single week. But it turns out they actually can. And it turns out, you know, somebody who's chosen that as their issue will roam around looking for more grist for their mill every single week. And you've got to look at it from a kind of, they're also, just like the protesters, they're getting a lot of identity and a lot of purpose and a lot of professional identity from it. So actually, I think they can keep going. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to find, I'd like to do a test of uh, a lot of these people who are very concerned about what you put in your body and nobody can mandate what goes into my body. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to test them for pub coke. Because when you look at the you look at the demos, there's an awful lot of wild energy on the go there. Yeah, an awful yeah. lot of wild energy. I'm sure that the idea that the body is the temple is not being strictly observed at your average <laughs> anti-vax demo. And you really notice that with, with like on, on, on your Facebook group and, the, you know, there's always somebody from your primary school who's mad anti-vax and you think, hang on a second i've seen you take like like tabs of acid and not even know what they were (laughs) why are you suddenly really against this kind of you know this 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 really quite well established medically safe process this is very much a disappointment in my life. The anti-vax raver is a very, very disappointing person, indiscriminately hoovering up whatever and then turning around saying, yeah, but you don't know what's in it. But there are, um, but that, 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 there are all these tropes that are really recognisable, like, you know, the body is my temple raver, the greedy hippie, these, these people who seem to kind of unite two really different strands of culture and counterculture. But for some mm. reason, the way they've united them makes perfect sense. Bit like the Brexity rude boy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. <laughs> you know, Brexity Paul Weller fan. But we digress. Uh, here, you're in the middle of a tour. We're doing an Oh God, What Now live show this week. Have you noticed a change amongst the punters? Do you, are there a lot of masks out there in your audience? It's been really interesting seeing the sort of development of uh, the percentage of audiences that will be masked. And certainly in the last fortnight, it has been noticeably more. So that's that's definitely happening. But I hope that, you know, I, fundamentally, I hope that people are still going to things because, you know, like theatres, particularly at this time of the year, a lot of theatres make a lot of their money uh, from the panto season. And those things... I know things, they don't. Like... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, that was that was deeply necessary, and I really approve of it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like a, a lot of theatres uh, really rely on this time of year to bring in bring in a whole bunch of money, and uh, I worry that people will end up not going to those things. Obviously, there's not really the financial support out there anymore, and indeed, this is this is probably the thing in the discussion of any future lockdowns or whatever, the most important man in the country is probably Rishi Sunak because he seems that he's he's just going to be unwilling to pay for any of it. Therefore, it likely won't happen. Well, everybody, make a note in your diary because according to the iPaper, Boris Johnson has earmarked the 17th of December as the most likely day for a review of the rules because he doesn't want to panic the public. So he's going to make a decision the week before Christmas. Are we back to another last minute decision? There you go. So hands up who's making concrete plans. I am, and I'll just revise them if need be. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I am. Then I was making concrete plans this time last year. I don't seem to have a pessimistic bone in my body. That's the spirit. (laughs) (laughs) The astonishing case of the disappeared tennis star Peng Shui, who vanished from public life over a month ago after accusing a retired Communist Party official of sexual assault, continues to focus attention on China's record on human rights. 
In since-deleted social media posts, Peng, one of China's biggest sports stars, accused former Vice Premier Zhang Golai of assaulting her. Attempts from China to show that she's safe, including an email purportedly from her, denying the allegations and videos, have only added to concern for her safety. Now the Women's Tennis Association has suspended all tournaments in China, and Joe Biden is expected to announce that no US government officials will attend the Beijing Winter Olympics. Zoe, what do you make of this? The International Olympic Committee has held a couple of video calls with Peng. Why are people not convinced of her safety and how is this developing? The kind of hallmarks of whether or not somebody is under house arrest or whether their rights are being curtailed in any way were described by Human Rights Watch like last week. You need more than a video. You need more than an email. You need more than a statement. You need to be able to see her leaving her house and going to the shop. You need to be able to see her kind of appearing in, in a kind of unfettered way. And that is what nobody has yet been able to ascertain. People haven't been able to see Peng with their own eyes going about her business. So in a sense, all the kind of co- quite carefully choreographed um, statements and video recordings that, that, that have been put out on her behalf, I think probably this is this may be the biggest scandal to rock China since a kind of new spirit of openness when they just, you know, it's like five, even five years ago, there was less social media scrutiny because there was less social media freedom. Even three years ago, there wasn't, it, it just wasn't quite so easy to get global access to the situation on the ground. And I think they're, they're in a fix. What is surprising to me is that it was the Women's Tennis Association that was that actually put its neck on the line first rather than any foreign government or global community. And I and I think, you know, I applaud them for it, but it does make you wonder about actual governments. Yeah, and the International Tennis Federation said it will not cancel any tournaments in China because it doesn't want to punish 1.4 billion people. The WCA is obviously at great financial risk and uh, not least that you don't want to make an enemy of China. Just the fact that, you know, the WTA is speaking out, albeit, you know, that tennis is being inconsistent on this, does it show how impotent governments are? I mean, I think essentially it's, we're really accustomed to global, to international sporting bodies being incredibly reserved. I mean, if you think about the apartheid era and how much it took before an Olympic committee or a single sport would object to apartheid, it was unbelievable. And that, you know, that kind of combination of commercial interests and also this sense that sport has no place in politics and politics has no place in sport created a complete amerta around obvious political injustice. So the, the, these kind of tournaments just carried on going. I personally think, yes, the, the, you know, the Women's Tennis Association has now has done something from which the tennis community overall will not be able to row back. So, the, you know, the International Tennis Association will I think, fall into line with the WTA rather than vice versa. You know, in terms of the international community, they're not very used to having levers of censure for China. I mean, you know, there are still huge kind of walls of silence around the Uyghur Uyghur Muslim situation. So it's, it's not that surprising that they haven't found a doughty and coordinated response. But I don't think I don't think they're going to be able to carry on forever with just kind of shuffling and looking at their shoes. Gavin, the whole the whole issue of China and human rights always crashes up against China's incredible economic and political power. Can Western governments actually do anything to persuade a country that simply doesn't care what we think and has strong economic power over us? It's very very difficult. There's there's so many elements to the story. I mean, I, I was looking at the the economics of it, and they they reckon that China brings about a billion dollars to tennis as a sport. And in basketball, the United, in the United States, the number of, in the past 20 years, the number of very, very tall Chinese basketball players who appear in the NBA getting a lot of money, but it means they get about a billion people, a billion sets of eyeballs in China watching NBA games. A guy who's not very familiar in Britain, unless you follow basketball, Yao Ming, uh, p- played over there, seven foot six inches tall, played for the Rockets in Houston. They talked about the Ming dynasty because he was such a great player. So the interconnection of sport is seen, particularly with American TV, as being so incredibly important. So it's very brave of the WTA to take the stance they have. But when I I was talking recently to an ethnic Chinese guy who's a much greater expert about what goes on in China than I am. And one of the things he said to me, which is very interesting, is you've got to recognize 
that the the elite in China, the people you see on television, they're all old guys in their seventies. This Zhang Gaoli is seventy five. He said, you, uh, "My my friend has, by the way, got grey hair." He said, "They're all older than me. They've all got dyed black hair." That tells you quite a bit about the elites, and they uh, they stick together. And so this has uh, has raise the curtain on some of the stuff that they don't want to anybody to talk about a guy 40 years older allegedly um uh, having sex with this uh with, with a tennis player with peng, Shao, peng shui um that whole question is something they would very very conveniently like to bury and it's also something that makes it is something that connects with people in the West and elsewhere. The Uyghurs do too, but that is very difficult. It is very difficult to put a face and a human story to that in the same way as it is with one person, one woman. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, not to not to belittle Punctuary's case, but it, it's an uncomfortable thought that this kind of massive crime against the Uyghurs, a, you know, genocide in plain sight, can't get the same traction as uh, you know, the treatment of an individual tennis player. But it's also it really it really does underline what Gavin was saying about the economic realities, which is and what you were just saying about the being genocide in plain sight. There is no small amount of objection you can do about the Uyghur Muslims. You can't say we this doesn't look like a great situation and therefore we're going to have time limited sanctions in this sector. You either go in and say this is genocide and there is no trading there is no kind of civilized trade relationship we can have with the genocidal nation or you don't mention it and at the moment the the kind of general international governmental consensus is to not mention it but i that is not a lasting situation gavin do you think a u.s diplomatic boycott of the winter olympics means anything at all is it just symbolic uh yeah <laughs> basically yes i think uh, uh, the, the whole question of sport and uh, what do you do about boycotts? I mean, we, we have had, for example, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton said he was a bit uncomfortable about uh, racing there. He won. This whole borderline between what sporting people can do and how sport can be used, both by those who stage the events and both uh, and by those who wish to criticise them for the human rights or other things, is very, very difficult. And I don't know what we mean almost by what works what works in a boycott uh, when people can continue to do what they're doing anyway. It's very, very difficult. And the connection, perhaps the connection works better to show people a different way. I don't know. I'm, I find this very, very difficult question to answer. I hear when you're not at the cricket listening to shocking chants about Bob Coke. What, how much of a sports fan are you in general? So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, both football and cricket. Um, and I think that sort of politics can be used for good through uh, sport as well, right? Like, I think that we've showed through the most recent England team and uh, the actions of, specifically, Marcus Rashford, who's done amazing things, yeah. uh, but the team more broadly uh, standing up and being, like, very vocally and proudly anti-racist and uh, exhibiting the sort of the sort of best of us uh, is also a, a really good thing. We've got Qatar coming up, the Qatar World Cup, which is borderline indefensible, you know, mm-hmm. People have died in the construction of those stadia in large numbers. I mean, I kind of half boycotted the World Cup in Russia because it just kind of had it, it you know, the entire awarding of the thing and the, and the kind of sports washing for Putin's regime was kind of nauseating. Qatar is, is, is going to be worse. I mean, will you be watching? I'm not going to watch the Qatar World Cup, uh, which it's, it's the time in my life that uh, the England men's team have the greatest chance of winning yeah. the World Cup and uh, I, I won't watch it. Um, but it is just very like I I have watched too much about and read too much about and listened to too much about uh, the working conditions in a lot of those uh, stadia and particularly given that these uh, largely young men from the subcontinent, it's odd to think that there are a few decisions having been made in different ways by members of my family at some point in the mid-20th century would have made me uh, uncomfortably close to being someone who could have ended up working in those sorts of situations. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it really does hit home when it looks like uh, when it looks like you and your family, you know. 
Finally, if you saw Boris Johnson floundering about Peppa Pig in his speech to a very unimpressed CBI, or that Australian journalist who managed to lose their interview slot with Adele because they'd missed the email with her album in it, or indeed seen Dominic Robb on TV at all, then you'll be aware of the dangers of winging it, hoping that you can get by on charm and fake spontaneity when you just haven't done the work. Are we living in a winging it society with a winging it government? Are the rest of us doing it wrong by trying? Ah, here. You could admit it in this particular safe space. Were you a beetling hard worker or a bit, a bit of a winger yourself at school? I don't know that I was incredibly diligent, uh, but I was always... Like, I think that I'm, I'm a combination of too nervous not to do the thing, but also too lazy to do it in any sort of reasonable time. So I used to, Like, I did my homework, but I would get up early on the morning and do it then, which is just like such a ridiculous false economy. I would have definitely been happier and better uh, in life if I'd um, done it earlier. But that's what I'm, I'm, a, I'm a procrastinator is what I am. Can you wing it in stand-up or, or is the art maybe to look like you're winging it when actually it's all carefully plotted down to, you know, the last dot of CT? Well, exactly. Like, I remember when I first started watching stand-up as a child uh, on the television and thinking, oh, my God, these people, uh, they're just they're just coming out and they're making all of this stuff up. And they're doing it. And that's that's obviously the, the great trick of it, right, to make something that has been very deftly prepared look entirely unprepared. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that there's, you know, there's there's always room for improvisation and those sorts of things that re-emphasize the fact that we are in this live environment and we can never experience it in exactly the same way again. But there's a, a lot of a lot of gears working to make it look more winged than it is, as you say. Zoe, Boris Johnson's friend and biographer, Andrew Gimson, wrote that it, that Johnson at school could never be bothered to learn his lines in the school play. So he'd leave notes around the stage and would run around reading them getting most of them wrong, but evoking howls of laughter from the crowd and intense frustration from his fellow actors. Is this one of the many reasons why he's so annoying that he's essentially just a winger, but he gets away with it? I mean, it's, it's certainly the case that all the reports of him at school are somebody who believes himself to be so exceptional that he doesn't have to observe the normal standards that other people observe. And, you know, all those people who laughed at him capering about reading notes because he hadn't learned his lines are should hold themselves responsible for the absolute shower that he has become as prime minister. But this is a real... I interviewed Rob Beckett, you know, the stand-up comedian. He's written this book about being working class in a middle-class world, and he'd written this book. It had a really long thing about his GCSEs and how hard he worked. And then he still ended up with D's and E's. And I thought, that's so extraordinary. I've never, ever, ever heard a middle class person say, I worked really, really hard and it's and I still fucked up. And I think there's a real class codified norm where you always pretend that you didn't really pull your finger out, just in case, just to offset the possibility that it might not go that well. So that we can't even remember whether we worked or not because we're so programmed to pretend we didn't do any work in case whatever we were working on was didn't go didn't go the way we planned it and I've, I've, I've increasingly the older I get the more obnoxious I find it I just think you know if you have done some work admit you did some work and if you haven't done some work then maybe you should have done some work yeah I mean you know <laughs> All of us on this panel have, in one way or another, kind of had things to do with large media organisations, many of which favour the expensively educated person who wings it. Why do people continue to respect that, this kind of performative effortlessness and think that doing the hard work is undignified? Is it just, like, as you say, Zoe, because it, you know if you work hard and fail, it puts you face to face with your own inadequacy? Or is it just we regard having to work hard as being something for the lower orders anyway? I mean, there's definitely this kind of Errol Flynn kind of, you know, trapeze artist um, ideal where you're just so naturally gifted that you just have to fly in and you don't need a safety net and you just swashbuckle your way through it. And then that kind of proves that you were born to rule. And it kind of, I, I suppose it does dovetail in a way with that kind of Etonian born to rule attitude. If it were kind of predestined, if it was in your stars because of your breeding, that that's where you belong, then you shouldn't have to work and you definitely shouldn't be visibly seen to be doing some work. But yeah, I think we should just all get over it because it's stupid. In the end, you do have to put effort in and, and there's no shame in saying it. And I think if there's, if there's going to be anything responsible for us all falling out of love with the winging it ideal, it's going to be Boris Johnson and the, and the mess he makes. 
Gavin, the FT had, had a great piece about this by Emma Jacobs, and she spoke to an organizational psychologist. He said, the more complex, skilled and well-paid your job is, the harder it is for others to tell if you are performing well or not. That certain jobs well, are you know, so yeah. complicated that you know, doing well and failing are hard to tell apart. Well, I, that may be true, but I, I have to say, I hang out, my wife's a musician, I hang out with lots and lots of musicians, so some of them are, are very, very well known. And they, yeah, they improvise. They work so hard. And the key, I've talked to lots of them about this, because they all screw up occasionally when live performances, that's why we go to live performances. Uh, they all screw up, but what happens is, they get away with it because they are hugely talented people and they know how to handle it. And they often say to me, it's not whether you screw up, it's how you handle it and audiences are with you. There's a difference between being a complete bluffer, uh, which, you know, in, in, in Boris Johnson's case, he would be, um, if he were a musician, he'd be an out-of-tune country singer. It's um, <laughs> a difference between just actually being pretty lazy and thinking you can get away with it because you're entitled and being really talented as these musicians are and winging it when they have to because they have to get through a bit where they've screwed up and, and they've, they've missed a cue or whatever. But that that's, again, that is what makes live performances worthwhile paying your money and going to see. I mentioned the Australian journalist who blew his interview with, with Adele earlier on. I've got to ask you, Gavin, because you're a, a distinguished journalist with, uh, with nothing left to prove. Have you ever had a Peter O'Hanrahan moment yourself? Have you ever lost the news in the ER? Well, uh, how can I put this? Uh, live on Newsnight one night during the Iraq war when uh, Tony Blair was not exactly the most popular person in town. I had Tony Benn sitting next to me in the studio and I turned to him and said, I'm with Tony Blair now and uh, Tony. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I have never been so insulted in all my life. <laughs> and then we both, we both collapsed in laughter. So, uh, yeah, I've, yeah I've, I've, I've screwed up. Yes, yes. Names are not my strong point. Donald. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker which means it's time for escape routes what are the films tv shows music books miscellaneous whatever you like that have taken our panel's minds away from the horrible and bruising and scarring world of politics gavin esler well, uh, in the last couple of days, I, I do these in conversations at the University of Kent. So uh, we have all kinds of people, uh, Sandy Toxvig, Prue Lease coming up and, uh, and so on. Uh, last week, I interviewed Sir Michael Morpurgo, who is a great hero of mine. So I actually read some of or reread some of his, his books. And he is just a great storyteller. What a great storyteller for, pe- for children of all ages, including me. Fantastic. Uh, here, how about you? I am this evening uh, going to go and watch uh, a sort of 4K restoration thing of The Matrix, uh, which I'm extraordinarily excited about. And this is ahead of the fact that there's going to be a new Matrix film coming out uh, soon, which, as you will all be aware, is only the second Matrix film ever to have been made. Mm, Yes, because the other two were just imaginary, weren't they? They didn't really happen. It was just a rumour. I don't even know what films you're talking about, Alex. (laughs) I'm told that the plot of the the new Matrix film is Neo takes the blue pill and he just sits around eating crisps for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Zoe Williams, how about you? I'm going to see Six, the musical, tomorrow night, which is like a rock opera about Henry VIII and his wives. I'm so excited that it's all I've been listening to all week. And just kick me off now before I start singing in Anne Boleyn's voice. <laughs> we'll, have you, we'll have you next time you can do it again. My, my escape route, I was uh, laid up ill uh, a couple of, for a couple of weeks. Glad to be back on the podcast. But while I was uh, away, the uh, fantastic Bunker and Oh God, What Now team clubbed together and sent me a care pack of comics to read while I was in hospital. And the best of the lot was Assassination by uh, an artist called Erica Henderson and a writer called Kyle Starks. And the premise is brilliant. The world's greatest former assassin is under threat. So he hires the next 20 best assassins in the world to be his bodyguards. What can possibly go wrong? It is hilarious. It's clever. It's got the same kind of, it's got the same kind of vibe as the movie Tropic Thunder, if you like that. Assassination. And it's like all great ideas. The title generates the whole thing. The idea that there's a subculture of assassins and hit hit persons. And they're a very diverse bunch, actually. Very interesting. The world of uh, the world of professional assassins could teach politics a little bit or two about bringing people in and making them feel included. It's fantastic. Uh, available in uh, 
your local comic shop from Image Comics. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ahir Shah. Thank you. And thanks to our special guest, Zoe Williams. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bonker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget there's a new episode of The Culture Bonker every Saturday where we talk about pop culture. If you like this podcast, remember, send it to three friends to help spread the word. Use the share button here in your app. And if you really liked it, then you can support us on Patreon. You'll get episodes early. You'll get merchandise and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bonker Podcast to find out more. Backers on Patreon get a shout-out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Kirsty Palmer, Paul and Donald Kelly. Best wishes from me to Mac Jordan, Russell Hayward and Helen Pickering. And many thanks from me to Andrew Castles, Emma Freeman and Phil Norton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison with Ahir Shah and Gavin Esler. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.